I have asked from the Lord that I, uh, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he shall hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Well, you may be seated. I'd like to speak to you this morning on the beauty of God. The beauty of God. In this psalm, David declared that the, the supreme desire of his heart was to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. It seems that at this time he was being besieged by enemies which were keeping him from being involved in the various ceremonies and sacrifices associated with the house of God. Above all else, above everything else, he wanted to be there in the tabernacle, or as it says in verse 5, the tent, the secret place of his tent. Uh, that The temple hadn't been built yet. Remember Solomon built that, but they had a tabernacle or a tent of meeting. And it was a beautiful structure because it was built according to God's design. And uh, the ceremonies and the pageantry that took place in uh, that setting displayed something of the beauty of God. But the real beauty of the house of the Lord was God's presence there. This is what David desired. This was the thing preeminent on his heart. Now we see this type of desire, this desire to be in God's house, to be in God's presence, often expressed in the Psalms. Let me just give you a couple examples. Psalm 84 verses 1 and 2 says, How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. So again, a desire to be in God's house, to meet with God. Uh, Psalm 96, verses 6 and 8. Honor and majesty are before him, that is, before God. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. So again, this desire to be in this beautiful setting that God had set apart for his presence. These psalms and many others express a basic hunger for God, a hunger to know more of God's beauty. See how he puts it here in uh, verse 4 of uh, Psalm 27. To behold the beauty of the Lord. More important 
than any uh, destruction of David's enemies, even though he was in a, a difficult situation here. More important than any delights of the world that he could experience. David's desire was to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. See how he says it? One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. One thing. So this morning, I'd like to share some thoughts with you on the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of, of God. This message is basically a call to all of us to seek to have our hearts and minds awakened to God's awesome beauty. Yeah. What are we talking about? Well, when we, we speak of the beauty of God, we're referring to the attractive character of God the attractive character of God. Um, his surpassing loveliness. That's the beauty of God, his surpassing loveliness. One person defined it this way. The beauty of the Lord means that in his nature, the Lord possesses everything that is desirable. In God, you find everything that is truly desirable. He is the sum of all desirable qualities. God's nature is such that where God is, there is beauty. If you take notes, you might write that down. Where God is, there is beauty. It's not just that he, con- that he possesses every conceivable, conceivable virtue, but that he exercises them in just the right proportion to one another. In God, all is in perfect harmony. In fact, one important part of beauty is the harmonious union of diverse things. That's what you find in God, a union of many different attributes, totally in harmony. Not only that, a harmonious union of persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, um, let me quote another writer here. In his works and word, God has manifested himself that we as his creatures might stand in awe, beholding the symmetry of his attributes, the harmony of his deeds, the glory of his goodness, and the overwhelming and unfathomable grandeur of his greatness. In a word, his beauty. That's what his beauty is all about. The symmetry of his attributes, the harmony of his deeds, the glory of his goodness, the overwhelming grandeur of his greatness. All things beautiful find their source and foundation in the character of the triune God. So God is ultimately the norm of everything good, the norm of everything true, the norm of everything beautiful. He's a standard of reference for those things. 
everything that is good and righteous and beautiful also has have their ultimate fulfillment in God. Here's what Wayne Grudem says. All of our good and righteous desires, all of, our, all of the desires that really ought to be in us or in any creature, find their ultimate fulfillment in God and in no one else. So what we're saying here is that God is the foundation of all beauty. He's also the fulfillment of all beauty. He's the Alpha and Omega related to beauty. One way of understanding the great panorama of biblical revelation is to see that God's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus is to bring about a creation which perfectly reflects his beauty. He's working to bring about a creation that perfectly reflects his beauty. More than that, his purpose is to have his image bearers, that is, redeemed humanity, delight in and share in his beauty forever. I'm going to read that again. Again, if you take notes, this would be a thing to write down. His purpose is to have his image bearers, that is, redeemed humanity, delight in and share in his beauty forever. I think we can trace five major links in what might be called the chain of beauty revealed throughout the scriptures. The first and foundational link is the intrinsic beauty of God. He's the foundation of all beauty, and in him is where beauty is found. So the first link is the intrinsic beauty of God himself. God was and is eternally beautiful in himself. Beauty always existed in the Trinity. It's not something we came up with. Beauty always existed in the Trinity. In time, he created a beautiful external uh, a beauty external to himself by speaking into existence a beautiful creation. So you start out with a beautiful God and he speaks into existence a beautiful creation. He pronounced what he had made good because it accurately reflected his character when he created the universe. It accurately reflected his character. And his character is beautiful. So what he made was beautiful. Human sin distorted that beauty. But, the next link in that chain, but he sent his son to earth so that beauty could be restored. His beauty is now partially displayed in the church. That's the fourth link. His beauty is now partially displayed in the church. And when Christ comes again, bringing a new heavens and a new earth, all will be beautiful once again. So that's the fifth link. So I want to consider these five links in the chain of God's beauty in a little more detail. Let me just repeat them real quickly here so you have them in mind. The five links. His eternal beauty, his beauty displayed in his creation, his beauty displayed in his son, his beauty displayed in his people, 
and his beauty shared with his people forever in the age to come. It's a continuum of beauty, starting with God and ending with God and his people. So to begin with, we won't get, we won't get all five of those today. Hopefully we'll make it through the first three. But to begin with, God is infinitely beautiful in himself. God, think about what I just said. God is infinitely beautiful in himself. From all eternity, all was perfectly beautiful because only God existed. So everything was perfectly beautiful because all there was was God and he's beautiful. He's infinitely beautiful in himself. Of course, this was not a physical beauty because God is spirit and there was no material aspect to anything prior to creation. This was a spiritual beauty that existed forever in God. When we speak of God's eternal beauty, we obviously are talking about things we cannot comprehend. The more we contemplate these things, the more we realize how little we really understand of how awesome a subject we're dealing with. Just in this one area, God's eternal beauty is far beyond what we can comprehend. God's eternal beauty, beauty is vast and mysterious, greater than the greatest beauty we can imagine. As one song says, you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. If you would take the most beautiful things you've ever experienced and multiply them a millionfold, you would not yet begin to do justice to the beauty of God. This beauty is especially manifested as the three persons of the Trinity exist in perfect in the perfect harmony of love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, enjoying eternal love for each other, a glorious harmony of interpersonal relationships. When the Bible says God is love, this was something that was true forever in the past. God is love. God is love. There is a love relationship. Love is... Love is eternal because God's eternal. And we see something of the beauty of God just in that love relationship between the persons of the Trinity. Perfect harmony forever and ever. And the more we learn of God's other attributes, the more overwhelming his beauty appears. God is beautiful in his self-existence. Now, each one of these you could just you could spend your life thinking about. God is beauty and is beautiful in His self-existence. He's beautiful in His holiness. He's beautiful in His greatness. He's beautiful in His power and His wisdom and His goodness and His justice and all the other attributes that you could name. Let me just encourage you to 
get a good book on the attributes of God and contemplate his character and you'll see more of his beauty. Uh, let me suggest a couple. Um, J.A. Packer's book on knowing God, there's a, a big section in there on the attributes of God. Sam Storms has a book called The Grandeur of God. A.W. Pink wrote a book on the attributes of God. My favorite is A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. Take those books and, and meditate on these attributes of God and you will get more of a feel for the beauty of God and the mystery of the, the beauty of God. You will not understand the things you read. But you'll know that God's beautiful as you meditate upon those things. You'll see the marvelous and mysterious beauty because the Trinity is perfectly beautiful in every possible way. In God we see the beauty of the harmonious union of diverse attributes. All, all these attributes you'd read about in those books and in the scripture. There's a harmonious union there. And you see the harmonious union of the distinct persons of the Trinity also. So that's the first chain in the link. But God did not content himself with this, what you might call, self-contained beauty. Rather, he set in motion a great chain of events by which his creation would share in his beauty. We're told in the first chapters of Genesis that God spoke into existence a good creation, a creation filled with beauty and wonderful things. Just think for a moment of what Adam and Eve saw and heard and touched and smelled and tasted tasted the moment of their creation. What wonders surrounded them. A pristine environment experienced with a crystal clear mind and all their senses operating perfectly. We don't have, we, we, we don't function that way anymore. But they did. They stood with beautiful harmony and regularity and order and design and complexity all around them. There in the garden of God's delights were beasts of the field, birds of the sky, flowing rivers, fine gold, beautiful stones. It mentions a couple of the onyx stone and the delium uh, stone that were there. Every tree that was pleasing to sight and good for food. Those are just some of the things that the second chapter of Genesis mentions as being part of this beautiful creation that surrounded Adam and Eve. And I think it's worth considering for a moment God's amazing originality in his beautiful creation. All this beauty had no pattern or precedent except the beauty in the mind of God who created it all out of nothing. When we try to make something beautiful, we're usually pattering it, you know, making it after something else. There wasn't anything else. It was just in the mind of God. Yeah. <coughs> Everything beautiful in nature, the iridescent butterfly wings, delicate snowflakes, singing birds, golden sunsets, sparkling stars, were designed by God 
with nothing to work from but his own eternal wisdom. All this order and complexity, all this fine-tuning of the forces of nature, all that originated in God. All creation is a reflection of the beauty in the mind of God. All creation was, at least, a reflection of the beauty in the mind of God. Truly, the heavens declare the glory of God, as does every atom and every molecule. He decreed the colors of the rainbow and designed the human eye to be able to receive those colors and the human mind to process this information and to be amazed at what it saw. Therefore, God and God alone is the source and standard of beauty throughout the universe. There's another one if you're writing things down. God alone is the source and standard of beauty throughout the universe. Just a little side note on that uh, truth. This means that beauty is not totally subjective. You know, we sometimes hear beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is the idea that, you know, different people have different ideas of beauty. That's not exactly true. It's true in a sense, if you're talking about the eye of the beholder being God, then beauty is in the eye of the beholder. God has an objective beauty which is based on his eternal character. That's, there's a standard of beauty and it's the character of God. One poet had it basically right when he said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. It's a joy forever because it's eternal coming from the mind of God. What is beautiful came from the mind of God. Sadly, God's creation did not stay in its beautiful created condition. Through sin and rebellion, humanity tried to go its own way, attempting to become their own standard of reference for the good and the true and the beautiful. <coughs> sin entered in, and sin is the great perverter of beauty. Sin is a beauty corrupter a beauty destroyer. Sin always leads to ugliness. This may not always be immediately apparent, but I can guarantee you, sin always leads to ugliness. By the common grace of God in restraining evil, there's still many beautiful things in God's creation, even though sin has entered in because of man's rebellion there's still many beautiful things in his creation. But sin has marred much also. As we look around at the world, we find great beauty, but we also find great ugliness and corruption. And I think it's true that if God left humanity to itself, all earthly beauty would soon be destroyed. But God, God has not left humanity to itself. He's not left us to ourselves. And he's done much more than just restrain evil. He's provided a way of redemption and restoration for his corrupted creation. He's giving beauty for ashes. 
This brings us to the beauty of God's Son, the great restorer of lost beauty. Though creation reveals something of the beauty of God, Jesus Christ displays God's loveliness in a much clearer and complete way. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And if God is beautiful, which he is, then Christ is certainly beautiful because all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Christ was God manifested in the flesh, the beauty of the invisible God made visible to human eyes. As he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. God sent his Son to earth to display the radiance of his glory and give, a, give us an exact representation of his beautiful nature. Though his glory was veiled while he was here on earth, Christ possessed a beauty unlike any other living being. I like the way the Apostle says it, John the Apostle says it in uh, John chapter 1, telling about the uh, disciples and what they saw. It said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I say again, Christ possessed a beauty unlike any other living being. Here is a man who lived a perfect life, a life of perfect purity, a life which demonstrated perfect justice and perfect grace, a life of majesty and humility, a life that displayed God's hatred of sin and love for the sinner. Never did any man speak so strongly against sin as Christ did, and yet sorrowful sinners were attracted to him. Broken sinners saw beauty in the Savior who would forgive their sins. Though Christ had a righteous anger against sin, he died for sinners. By his death on the cross, he made it possible for justice, justice to be executed and mercy to be extended. In Christ, all the diverse virtues and graces of God are represented in perfect harmony and in perfect proportion. He, co he combined commanding dignity with winning humility, fearless courage with wise caution, an unyielding firmness with sweet gentleness. He had an all-absorbing devotion to God combined with a self-sacrificing interest in the welfare of others. Here was infinite greatness combined with infinite lowliness. Never before had such a figure existed, combining the majesty of heaven with the meekness of earth. Well, those are some expressions by a man named Philip Schaff in a book called The Person of Christ. Another good thing to read sometime. He showed forth a preeminent love for God combined with a passionate love for needy sinners. To restore 
beauty to God's creation, Christ willingly allowed his appearance to be marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Earlier I said that beauty, that the beauty of the Lord means that in his nature the Lord possesses everything that is desirable. As we examine the life of Christ as it's presented to us in the scriptures, we see that he is God, godly beauty perfectly personified. He is altogether lovely. All that is desirable is found in him. Again, he's godly beauty perfectly personified. Well, much more could be said and should be said about the beauty of the Son of God. If you'd like to read more on the beauty of Christ, one good source is a sermon by Jonathan Edwards entitled, The Excellency of Christ. It's well worth reading, something to really meditate upon, The Excellency of Christ by Jonathan Edwards. You can find it on the internet. So thus far we've looked at three of the five links in the chain of God's beauty. His eternal beauty, his beauty displayed in his creation, his beauty displayed in his son. Lord willing, next time we'll look at his beauty displayed in his people. And then his beauty shared with his people forever in the age to come. In closing, I just would present the question to us all. Is our great desire, like David's, to behold the beauty of the Lord? One thing I have asked from thee, from the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. Well, um, I couldn't, as I was preparing this message, that song by Keith Green kept going through my mind. Some of you are old enough to remember Keith Green. He very passionately wrote and sang a song it says this, O oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. I want to take your word and shine it all around, but first help me just to live it, Lord. And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown, for my reward is giving glory to you. O oh Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burns with holy fear. O oh Lord, you're beautiful. May God give all of us that testimony.